We're back, guys. Let's continue with John Lord and Mike Mumford and Gray Hughes. Silenced episode 11. Forensics. Psychologist Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott. Shifting the conversation a little bit, starting to look more in Brad's direction. Uh, something that was clear from the texts for me was um, alcohol and drug use. And in particular, alcohol seems to be a very strong motivating factor for him. We know he has a past with domestic violence issues. Can you give us a little insight into how alcohol and drugs might fuel domestic violence issues, how, how that works together? So when we're looking at specifically intimate partner violence, and I just want to be specific because domestic violence now can include anyone living under the same household, siblings, parent, child, if they're adults. Um, so in intimate partner relationships and violence, substance abuse is a huge risk factor for that taking place. There's, there's several other risk factors. Um, the ones that jump out to me for Brad are past violent behaviors, which is classic. We talk about that all the time in psychology, right? The, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And anytime I'm doing a risk assessment for violence or a sexual offender, it's going to include looking at that history because it's so highly correlated with future violence. So those absolutely stick out to me. Um, his substance abuse is pretty evident from the get-go with her. Um, within a couple of weeks of knowing each other, you know, she's helping him hide his alcohol. Um, he's talking openly about just cleaning the house and drinking and being drunk while he's tipsy. Um, he's, he's definitely letting her know that that's a big part of his life. Yeah, I, um, as far as the substance use in his case, I'm, I mean, I think that takes a second fiddle to what he is characterologically. Um, you know, there's, he just fits this. I don't want to necessarily use the profile, but he's hitting so many points on the scale of someone who engages in intimate partner violence. And, uh, and that, that's another thing that, that confounds this for me, although it starts to confound me because you want to go, how did this wonderful woman end up with this guy? And, but what we know is that people who are perpetrators of partner violence have a way of pulling their victims into that cycle. They can take anyone, you can take the strongest person in the world and bring them into this coercive control cycle and begin that. The thing that surprised me about all this is how rapidly it happens. Like this is such a short time for this toxic relationship to go so deep and so dangerous. Um, I don't feel like I have enough uh, information uh, regarding her substance use because it doesn't seem like there's any really long-term history of it. But certainly like Dr. Shiley was saying, with him, I mean, it just seems like it's it's literally just another checkbox off his profile. 
When you, when you mentioned uh, the background that he has uh, with abuse, is it just abuse in general, or is it the specific kind of abuse where he has with a history of strangling or choking his partners? I, I was there anything in his criminal history about violence, like with other men, like a fight or assaults or things of that nature? No. No, everything was pretty much, um, you know, driving infractions and, and drinking. And, uh, you know, in particular, he, he strangled uh, an ex-wife and was charged and served time for that. Um, we've heard of a couple of other stories with women that had relationships with him where they were also choked. Um, you haven't heard this episode because it hasn't been released as of when we're recording this, but his ex-wife actually wrote um, in her statement that wound up in the court records that she was convinced that he would wind up killing someone. Yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me. There's women before Elisa and then after Elisa that have fallen victim to strangulation behaviors with him. And strangulation behaviors specifically are such a precursor to intimate partner homicide. There was a study done out of San Diego County here in California by the DA's office, um, and they looked at 300 near-fatal cases where strangulation was involved. Um, and then through a larger portion of their study, they were able to look at women who were strangled at least once were 750 times more likely to die by the hands of their intimate partner. So it's, it, it's a huge correlation. Um, and I think with him and Morph to answer your question, we're seeing a very narrowed way in which his violence is manifesting. He's not out there picking fights with other guys at bars or um, getting in sort of those types of altercations. It's with the women in his life. Yeah, definitely for criminal charges. I know in the text messages, I did see a few references to him wanting to, you know, beat up someone or chasing someone down or something like that. But for charges, yeah, nothing around that. So uh, you both listened to the interview that Brad had with the detectives on the day that Elisa was found. Um, did you have any takeaways from that interview? What were your impressions? So we're always very cautious to judge, and I know you guys have hit on this. Um, about people's behavior and grief and under extreme stressful situations. So let's strip away our preconceived notions of him as a human being and just think about the situation that he's in. If, if he didn't cause it, um, and even if he did, it's still traumatic. It is extremely stressful, whether he's guilty or not. And there is grief that is there. Um, as callous as we want to put him or not, um, all of those elements are there. And there is something to say you cannot judge someone by how they're acting in a complex traumatic situation and or a grief situation. So I am very hesitant to comment on it as a professional, as a person <laughs> with feelings and looking at it and feeling um, like I can watch a police interview or interrogation and kind of call the guilt or innocence by that. Um, I have some strong feelings towards the way he's reacting, but that's not based on, on research and science. Um, I will also add, I think 
I think the interviewer, the detective, put a fair amount of pressure on him for it being simply an investigative interview. Right. It didn't rise to the level of interrogation at that point. And I think there, it would have been nice to have some follow through on some other questions. Yeah. Um, but he was definitely stressed out by being there and, and what was going on and what was being asked of him. Well, and if you look at his criminal history, I mean, it, it's obvious. He, this guy doesn't have a good time when the cops are around. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. But, I would, but I would also I, I second everything that uh, Dr. Shiloh says. The only thing that I would add to it is what's notable to me is inconsistency. And, you know, it just seems that now, like, there's a lot of factors. There's a, not a lot of follow through on certain questions, but that inconsistency in some of his answers was notable to me much as if we come back around to Sharon, is it yep. Sharon, Sharon's her name? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we can talk about that a little bit later if we have time, but um, you know, that's one, another thing that's notable about her as a part of this exploration is just, you know, it's, it's muddying the waters to have someone who constantly changes their story. Um, yeah. But yeah, we have to be very careful about judging some people under duress because people act in very odd ways. It's one of the things we've talked about this several times on our podcast. Shiloh and I get very frustrated in cases where we hear judges making sort of these blanket statements of uh, you're showing no emotion and you're, you know, just sort of making a statement on what this person's presenting after they've been through nine months of preparing for a trial and their family's sitting out there and everybody's under a lot of stress. It's just not a fair uh, comparison to make at that point in time. Yeah. What is the norm at that point? Right. Yeah. And how, how would you find your baseline at this point? Well, you see right. that a lot on social media. People think that they're, you know, psychoanalysts there. They're looking at the interviews that maybe the media is giving somebody that everybody considers a suspect. And if they don't look exactly the way they think he's supposed to look or she then they start going, oh, look at that, look at that, look at that. He looked, he looked to the left, he looked to the right, he blinked right there. They come up with all this stuff, and it gets really frustrating. So you have people being accused of of crimes when it turns out they didn't even do anything at the end. They just acted differently than the norm that you thought was the norm. And the media, like you said, I think you bring up a really good point, Gray, is like the media does this thing where, you know, say someone is, is um, accused of something horrific, and the photographer happens to catch that one moment in time where they've got a slight smirk on their face. And then that photo becomes the icon that is used to substantiate this person's guilt, which is not fair. That's not supposed to help be how our, our legal system works. Yeah. Um, and yet that, because that takes on life of its own, whether or not that person is guilty or innocent. You know, that's not fair that it takes on a life of its own. Kind of interesting that we're going to follow up with this question because I know there is no norm in these situations, but you guys have much more experience with understanding how people work in situations like this. Um, Assuming that Brad either ended her life or that she ended her life, what does the follow-up action tell us of him going into a heavy party lifestyle immediately after her death? We've got the house that is completely wrecked. Uh, he runs away from the cops. He winds up wrecking her car and then, you know, trying to escape the situation. 
Um, there's, there's a lot of information that there was a lot of really crazy things happening in that house following her death, which, how does, how does that work into a determination here? Well, we know that alcohol is his drug of choice and it doesn't surprise me either way that this is how he would choose to deal with a very stressful situation, whether it's self-induced because he caused her death or because it's his way of coping with grief. He obviously is not a, a good coper, a good decision maker, um, someone who has that amount of chronic alcohol and substance use might even have some frontal lobe brain damage from the substances that he's used. So that's going to be all of his executive functioning that is responsible for making good decisions. And all of that combined could look like something like this. His choice is just to party. Um, I, I don't necessarily see it as like this party, like celebration. Um, but having said that, if we're going to take the, the um, other extreme and look at, is this person just psychopathic and does not care about what he just did and is sort of throwing it in her face of the family's face of zero remorse and just thinking about himself? I mean, if you had to do a one-line definition of a psychopath, that would be it. So... It's really hard to say how that fits. I'm not familiar with any research and um, you know how people specifically with this situation who have substance abuse problems necessarily deal with grief um, in terms of looking like they're having a party. Yeah, we're not. We're also not talking about somebody that's noted to have good judgment anyway, right? So it could be he could be an outlier. This could be like. Shiloh was saying is could be his really, really poorly developed coping skill, or it could be an indicator of, you know, some real antisocial tendencies. Gotcha. Um, I have been extremely close to this case for a long period of time now. And when I got the text records and started reading through them, uh, I was amazed at seeing kind of to your point earlier about how quick they got into really bad fights, how long those fights lasted. And there was something in me when I was reading them that I was like, she's starting to see it. She's going to get out of this relationship. Like I had this hope that for some reason the text messages were going to show me that she actually leaves him and somehow she never died in the first place. I, I've never had this happen before. Um, Reading those text messages, they, they just took me to such a bizarre place of uh, really feeling even worse about what happened because there was a lot of strong indicators that this relationship was not great from the start. But we sent the text messages to you guys. Can you give us um, what your thoughts are about that chain, that communication? What did you notice and see in it? Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing, I think Shiloh has more... Uh, 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 a more direct about the content of the text, but to, in relation to what you just said, I wanted to reflect back on something that her sister shared that I think is very telling. And her sister said in the interview that she wanted to be married and that, that like, just take that statement alone 
and, and think about it, that she wanted to be married, that she was at this age, you know, what, what's going through her mind. And I think that, I mean, here we are, we're four guys and, you know, we have one woman here on the panel discussing this and it may be hard for men sometimes to understand the cultural weight that that has for women in Western society, but that, that, that need or that importance in her life seems to play a very important role. Shiloh, what, what are your thoughts on that? I agree with all of what you said that that could absolutely be possible and be what her narrative was. Um, I also was very alarmed at how quickly these, this relationship is developing and not just the relationship. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to judge that people jump into relationships quickly and that can be fine. I'm here to self-disclose. My husband and I were living together a month after we met, um, but we've been married for 15 years. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it can work out. It can be the right decision. Um, and like they say, sometimes when you know, you know. Um, but the, the level of self-disclosure, you don't normally see that in a honeymoon phase of a relationship. I mean, I feel like they didn't even have a honeymoon phase. And when I say honeymoon phase, I mean, that's usually the first six months of a relationship where your endorphins are just going crazy and you're on a high and you're wanting to put your best foot forward and show this person that you're wonderful because you want them to think you're wonderful because you think they're wonderful. And they're talking about MRSA and, you know, having staph infection and, alcoholism and like all of their skeletons in their closet kind of are out in the first two or three weeks. Yeah. And it, it's just, it, that was probably alarming to me. Like what's going on here? What is, what are the personality makeups of these two? And as I continue to read and see these long drawn out text message arguments it just gave me a window into a toxic relationship like I've almost never had before. Because we can hear about it through a friend or a story or secondhand, but to feel like you're sitting in the car with them or sitting in the house with them while they're texting us back and forth, the toxicity just felt like it was seeping out of these messages. Yeah, when things got bad, they went really bad and for a long period of time. And you mentioned that this was very fast, and, and that maybe goes back to Elisa being an impulsive person like we talked yes. about earlier. Uh, and I wonder how much of that is Brad being a um, the big bad wolf that comes along and takes advantage of that and jumps into that knowing that he can work that for, for what it's worth. Well, you know, you know what I didn't see was a ton of verbal manipulation by him in these. I didn't really see that cycle of violence. Um, well, it's hard to explain. Like, it, like him trying to talk her into things or convince her of things or tell or even gaslighting necessarily. Yeah. It's just they were both elevated and up and then they were both just super nasty to each other, kind of meeting each other in these same places. So I, I think it makes sense more. Wasn't, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, John, wasn't he pushing her on the wedding? Was that a little bit of a, a turnaround towards that, trying to control her a little bit? 
Um, well, according to information from some people I've spoken to in the family, uh, it they are under the assumption that it was him that kind of led her down the aisle. And we had a strange situation going on there because they were talking about having like a full-blown wedding in April. And they were supposed to go to just get the license. But the reason he gives is he says that, well, the license would only last for six months and it wasn't going to cover when their actual wedding came up. Well, then why go get the license? It's not a big deal to go get a license. So something was, there was some type of factor that pushed them towards getting married at that point. I think from Elisa's point of view, she really had this thing that I saw in the text messages where whenever he would go out and start raging and partying, she wanted to pull him home. She always thought that getting him back in the house was like literally the answer that, you know, she couldn't do anything if he was out there partying, but if he was in the home, I think she felt like she could help him, you know, and we saw that pattern from very early on. The doctors mentioned it, the pattern of, you know, he thinks he can't control his own alcohol and she's hiding the alcohol from him. And that comes up in their fights even, you know, um, but why did she want to help him like him? I mean, he didn't seem like he had anything redeeming. I mean, I don't mean to sound well. I do. I mean to sound mean. He just there didn't seem to be anything redeeming about the guy. Uh, and I think that's her nature. I think she's the kind of person that is looking for that wounded puppy, that absolutely. animal that needs comfort and and aid. And I can help this puppy and bring it into my life. And, and make it that puppy, you know. That's well, what I'm let's saying. let's like, let's put it let's put it to the, the woman of this panel, Doctor Shiloh. Yeah. Can you give us some <laughs> insight into this mentality that she would have been trying to save his life or make him a better person? Uh, well, as the token woman on this panel, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I think it speaks. Morph kind of hit the nail on the head. She's a helper. It speaks to her personality. She loved to help other people or animals and that's a fixer that's someone who who is so generous but that can also be a red flag that they're not looking at their own stuff and what's going on with them they're just preoccupied with fixing people around them so it, it i think it's more of her personality and makeup and if she was struggling with any sort of underlying mental illness that wasn't super obvious um more than you know, necessarily just being a woman. Um, I don't know what her relationship was like with her father too much. There is kind of the old adage that, you know, women try to fix men that sort of mimic the uh, negative behaviors they've seen in their own fathers. Um, but that's getting a little psychodynamic for me even. Sure. Um, all right. So, you saw a bunch of the information. I know you've listened to several of the episodes. Did you see any severe warning signs that Elisa had suicidal ideations? I would say I didn't see any severe warning signs. No, there was, there was nothing from the information that I have that I would say this woman needs a, a, risk, a risk assessment for suicidal ideation. I, I, I completely agree. Even, even with the sort of dramatic proclamations that she was making and the statements, that doesn't, to me, reach the level of someone taking that next step. I mean, 
you know, like we said, there's always the possibility of that outlier that acts impulsively and is able to complete the action. And, but this just doesn't, and this gets into where we kind of move away from quantifiable statistics. I mean, there's an art to what we do. It doesn't feel right. Right. It just doesn't feel right. Uh, to flip it on the other side, Dr. Scott, is Brad the type of person that would show up as a case file on your desk? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, this is somebody that um, would have been, you know, called multiple times, you know, that would have had 911 called on him multiple times for DV or intimate partner violence or, you know, his own um, actions in the community while under the influence of substances. And yeah, that would fits the profile perfectly. I think the biggest question um, that you guys can really help us with, this is something that is just kind of a personal dream for me because of my close contact with the family. Is there any way that they find closure in this? We've got a case where the medical examiner won't say it's a homicide, won't say it's a suicide. It's stuck. It could not be determined. We've got a police department that has basically brushed the file off their desk. They think they have their thoughts about it, and that's about that. How does this family find closure in this? How do they move forward? It's really difficult. Um, the, this, what the scenario you're describing is one of the worst case scenarios. You know, I mean, one of, one of the things I would say is when, when we're providing support to families or when I'm in my private practice, when I'm helping people work through grief is that, you know, we all want an answer that will give us relief, that will give us a reason for why something happened. And that's predicated on the belief that understanding why will make us feel better. And that's not always accurate. You know, if it was just like they, if it all flipped tomorrow and they were able to say it was a suicide or it was a homicide, the idea of having that answer probably is something they fantasize about giving them relief. But I can tell you from my experience, it, it doesn't give the relief that you want it to, unfortunately. Um, I think it's important to, if, if there, while this is in this flux or in this gray area that may never be resolved, you have a choice as an individual and as a family of whether or not you're going to try and move forward. And what I would say in trying to move forward is do what you can to honor her memory and, and honor the love that clearly everyone feels for her. You know, to this day, there's such strong emotion around who she was as a person and what she gave back to those around her. That's what I would say focus on. I'm not saying don't push to try and get an answer on what happened, but those are two separate entities. One is the emotional relief versus getting sort of the, the justification and the understanding for what happened. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I really think you hit some very strong points there. I'm really happy that, that we got to that. Uh, Dr. Shiloh, did you have any comments to add to that? I, I think that was phrased really well by Dr. Scott. I would just add that I think this case is completely solvable. It's going to be the cooperation of the other people who were there that night. And that may come with time. 
it may be a long time before the family knows or hears the truth, but I think there are some major things in people's lives that can move them to want to come forward finally and tell the story. Um, and so either it's going to be something like that, or it's going to be new investigators taking a fresh look and, um, trying to turn over some new stones. I was going to say, I often say on, on my show that there, see, I don't, I don't believe in, um, that there's such, even such a thing as closure when it involves someone dying. I think it's more you, you're able to learn to live with it, but maybe you need to close that chapter of the story out by getting an answer, but you'll, you'll never have closure to their death and you just learn to live with it better. I, I completely agree. Yeah. Everybody says closure, but nobody ever sits down and tries to defer, define what that term means. Right. Right. So you and I might have very wildly different ideas of what closure means for someone. Closure might mean that I don't ever think about this again, or that I'm not going to be sad or I'm not going to, miss, you know, my mother who died three years ago, that's, that's sort of, it's like this um, sort of nebulous thing that everybody's trying to hold on to. And um, that's something that I think that is really helpful for people that are going through is like they need a counselor, whether it's a grief counselor or a pastoral counselor, a, a minister, a therapist to, to work through that and realize that closure why would you want closure? Why would you want to close the door on the loss of someone you loved instead of cherishing that memory and understanding that that person is part of you and you're never going to lose that. You never want to lose that person or that loss. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a grief expert and researcher named David Kessler. Um, and some people may have, might've heard him on the confronting OJ Simpson podcast. He was a guest on there. And, um, I've seen him speak many times and I know him and he, people constantly ask him, how long is this going to hurt? How long am I going to grieve? And he comes back at them with how long is your loved one going to be dead? And it's kind of a blunt way to say it, but it's going to hurt forever. And it is about healing and sort of that new normal that you're talking about, Gray. Yeah. And what's hard and uh, what's hard is to heal when there's no resolution though. You know, like I, I had a brother that died and it took me about two years to sort of get back to a sort of a normal living, but he's always in my mind. But I, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to have um, if he had died and there was no reason why and that was still up in the air the whole time. It seems like it would just kind of keep you in this perpetual state of grieving almost where you can never quite get past that. Is that something that you've come across where, where it's, it's not a solved case? Definitely. Uh, it's, it, it, there's no resolve. There's no, uh, with death, no matter what kind of death it is, why is always there, even if it is a, a terminal illness. You know, why this person? Why now? There's always going to be why. Um, and people in the the positions like Elisa's family that don't have the answer or people that don't have a body to their missing loved one. Um, all, they often comment on, it's just, it's like that wound is just open and can't start healing. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Shiloh, Dr. Scott, you have given such amazing information and insights. We 
so appreciate your time. Thank you so much for all the work it took in terms of coming to understand this case and for spending time with us. Um, everyone out there, please be sure to check out their work on LA Confidential. And where can people find you? Um, so people can find a, our podcast on all major podcatchers. On Twitter, we're at LA Not So Pod. Instagram, we're at LA Not So Podcast. And we're on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. And then we have a website where we do all of our resources, like good little psychologists. We, <laughs> we have probably more journal articles than anyone ever wants to read. Um, and our website is la-not-so-confidential.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Shiloh. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott. I really hope we get to work together again someday. There's some talk, I'm just going to put a little bug out there, about us working together again at CrimeCon uh, whenever that happens. We'll see. But I really hope it comes together. I can't wait to work with you guys again. Thank you. Absolutely looking forward. Take care. Thanks for the opportunity. You got it. And for anyone out there, if you are struggling with thoughts of ending your own life, please don't hesitate. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. It's there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And please join us for the finale live stream on Wednesday, April 8th at 6 Pacific, 7 Mountain, 8 Central, and 9 Eastern on my channel, Gray Hughes Investigates, and make sure to hit the subscribe. Uh, subscribe button and the notification bell if you want to find out more about our show you can do that over at www.3meninamystery.com and that's with the number three if you have any feedback corrections or new details you can send them to us via email at three men at three men that's with the number three or you can reach out to us on twitter our handle is three men in a mystery or find us on facebook three men in a mystery is produced by john lorden Mike Morford, and Gray Hughes. Please be sure to rate us on the podcasting platform that you found us on and help us grow by telling your friends and family about us. Don't miss the final episode of Season 2, streamed live at Gray Hughes Investigates. We'll be sharing some new info and the latest developments. Yes, there's still stuff we haven't covered with you guys yet. We're also taking your comments and questions via chat, possibly even taking a, phone, a few phone calls. We'll be there on April 8th, and the live stream will be released on the podcast feed the following day. I'm John Lorden. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Gray Hughes. And we are three men and a mystery. Well, they are the best. The best I've ever heard. And they each have their own separate YouTube channels and other platforms, as you just heard them say. And they were evaluating in this uh, episode 11 with the forensic team. They were evaluating the death of Elisa Gomez. What are they talking about now? And good evening. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm taking it back. Uh, this is episode 10 of season two, Silence, the Death of Elisa Gomez. Today, we're going to talk to someone that's been investigating the case firsthand, and he wants to share with us why he thinks this is indeed a murder and not a suicide. We'd like...
well, we'll jump off here and then jump back on to episode 10, John Bishop's investigation, the death of Elisa Gomez. It's called Silenced, episode 10. And we just finished Silenced, episode 11, with the forensic psychologist. Thank you for listening.